All right, we turn to uh, 1 John 3. This is 11 through 14, uh, the end of this third chapter. And I want you to see something in this. I want you to see that believing God's message transforms us human beings from haters to lovers. And I know that you don't often think about yourself as a hater. Um, and, and maybe when we describe hate, you'll go, oh, yeah, I guess there is a little bit of that in me. Um, but I want you to see that believing God's message transforms us, human beings, from haters to lovers. And I want you to see this in three ways. We're going to look at three different transformations. The first is going to be in verses 11 through 15, being transformed from death to eternal life. The second is in verses 16 through 18, where we are transformed from murderers to self-sacrificers. And then lastly, 19 through 24, that we are transformed from condemnation to competence. What do you do to change in your life? Seriously, what do you do? Do you make determinations when fall comes around and you say, I'm going to do better than I did last fall? What changes do you set into place? What changes do you make when you think about the aspects of your lives that you would like to see different? The question is, what changes us as human beings? And I believe that what John, Father John, if you will, John the Apostle, in the latest stages of his life as he writes to the Christian, is saying to us that believing in God's message transforms us. It did the first time you put your faith in Christ, transformed you from a hater to a lover, and I'm going to show you that as we look at Cain. But it continues to do that for us now. John seeks to encourage us, and I pray that in these next few minutes, you and I will be encouraged. I want you to see how he demonstrates that God's message transforms us from death to eternal life. Look at these verses 11 through 14, if you will. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning. This idea of this being the message is only the second time that John's used it. The other time that he used it was in John 1.5. And guess what? That's the only other place in all of the New Testament where that word is used, the message. This is the message. And so it ought to be something that we pay attention to. It's the word that says this is the news or this is the proclamation it's, it's the shortened form of the good news. It doesn't say good news. It just says this is the news. And it's the proclamation of news that changes your life. It was taken out of the public sphere, not out of the religious sphere, so that John could communicate with everyone. It was taken out of the idea of a contest. Like when a winner was declared, this is how it was declared. There is a new winner in the Colosseum. So everyone knew to whom they were subservient, right? It was when a government would take over from another government and it was declared, we are now in charge. And so the obvious response is submission to that new government, right? This idea that there is a message, something that is, is declared, always demands a response. And you're going to see that in this very illustration that John gives us. He says, for this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. It's joined with the message from 1 John 5, which God is light. Remember, when we talked about 1 John 1, 5, we talked about the idea that God is light, is God is, is glorious and brilliant, yes, but he is holy and that he is revelatory in everything that he does. 
He reveals truth. God shines and truth is born. God shows up and his very first words are, let there be light so that we might understand what it means to be a human. And so in one sense, the declaration that God is light is followed with the response of human beings that we should love one another, is what John says. And then he says, we should not be like Cain. Notice how patient John is. John's an old man. John's lived a faithful life. John is presumed to have died late into his life, the only apostle that didn't die a martyr, um, but he did die in captivity. So in some senses, I guess you could say he had a martyr's death. You would think that he would say, you shouldn't be like Cain. But recognize how John, in his humility and in his, in his corporateness, says we shouldn't be like Cain. We shouldn't be like Cain who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. I want you to remember Cain and his story for just a minute. Do you remember it? If you don't, you can turn to page 3 of your Bible and you can read in Genesis 4 the story of Cain and Abel. Do you remember the story? Cain and Abel were to bring their sacrifices before God. We're not told that God said to bring their sacrifices, so there was obviously a conversation that proceeded. And so Cain and Abel brought their sacrifices. Cain brought the produce from the ground. He was a farmer, and so he brought what he produced from the ground, and he gave it to God. Abel, who was a shepherd, brought a sheep, and he gave that sheep's life. He killed that sheep and offered that sheep to God. Life is what Abel offered God. And we're told that Abel's offering was approved by God, but that Cain's was not. And if you go back and if you read Genesis 4, 6, you see that Cain became very angry. And it actually has this great expression, his faces fell. And, and the word is in the plural, and it's oddly there because just like your faces now, when, when you, when you are, are, are perplexed or your emotion is shown, your eyes shift, your nose shifts, your ears shift, your mouth shifts, everything about you changes. And it says that Cain's face fell. But what is interesting is that God comes to Cain. There in Genesis 4, 6, God asked Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And then he explains to Cain what sin does. He says, Cain, be careful. Sin crouches at your door. Sin crouches at your door, but you must master it. You must crush it, is what he says. But what you don't see is Cain responding to God. Cain turns from God, the God who is light. He turns from God, and he actually turns and he speaks to Abel. Cain refuses God's light and his revelation. And instead, with hatred, he kills his brother Abel. And John says, we should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder his brother? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Isn't it amazing that God pursued Cain as Cain offered something that he produced and he said, I can produce what pleases you. But Abel knew, no, nothing is going to please God except life. Sin had entered the world. Death had come. And death had to be paid. And so Abel offered a sacrifice. 
But even in God's pursuit of Cain, Cain ignored God. Cain turned the other way, and he hated his brother. Now listen to what Cain wanted. He wished his brother wasn't even there. Now let me ask you a question. Is, is there anybody whom you hate? You go, no, of course I don't hate anybody. I'm an upstanding citizen. I don't hate anybody. Is there anybody in your life you just wish wasn't around? If you had your druthers, you wouldn't have to deal with them. Do you begin to feel a little bit like Cain? Well, Cain ends up murdering Abel. Cain doesn't hear God. He doesn't obey God. He doesn't believe God. Instead, he turns and hates his brother and murders him. And John drives the comparison home. He says, don't be surprised, brothers and sisters, is what it says in, chapter, in verse 13, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Now, again, you could take this the wrong way as we talked last week and said, okay, the way I know that I can go from death to life is by loving brothers and sisters. That's not what he's saying. He's saying you know that you have passed from death to life and, and an illustrative point in your life to that end is that you love brothers and sisters. The change has happened. How do I know that? Because John picks up a phrase that he heard Jesus use in John 5. John 5 says, if you receive me and believe him, believe him who sent me to believe God, then you have passed from death to life. You have eternal life to believe God. Remember, God is light. He reveals truth about his holiness and about humans imperfection and our need. And then he reveals in Christ that we're about to see how that need is met, right? And we move, we pass from death to life. We were once dead. Jesus says, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me, belief proceeds, right? Believes him who sent me has eternal life. They will not go through the judgment, but they have passed from death to life. Love and love of the brothers and sisters, love of the church is proof of belief. It's proof of believing in who Jesus is. Let me ask you a question. Do you love the brothers and the sisters of the church? Is church important in your life? Is church the place where you go and sacrifice? Because John is saying it's proof that you have believed God's word. And it is the way that we pass from death to life by believing God's word, what he has spoken, that in him is truth, in him is light, in him is life, and as we'll see, in him is love. Believing God's message transforms us from death to eternal life. That's what John is pointing out here. And he says, listen, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. He doesn't say that everybody who hates ends up murdering. Just because you're not a murderer doesn't mean that you and I don't harbor hatred in our hearts. And he's going to highlight it for us in this very next step. The second thing in verses 16 to 18 that he shows us is that we're transformed from murderers to self-sacrifice. And listen to how he says it. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. In other words, John is saying, now this is how we know what it means to love one another. The second half of that message, that God is light and therefore we should love one another. The proclamation that has a response. He says, we know what love is because Jesus laid down his life for us. 
And he goes on to say, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers and the sisters. And we go, wow, that's, that's incredible. Here, the message of loving each other is defined for us by Christ. Again, Christ's death is something that you have to respond to. When you hear it, whether you're a believer or not a believer, you respond to Christ's death. Either you go, hallelujah, what a savior. Hallelujah, what a friend. Thank you, Jesus. And you worship him and you give your life to him or you hear it and you reject it. You go, it's not for me. I don't believe it. But you see the proclamation that Jesus is the son of God who died for sinners, who died for us, is something that we have to respond to. And here love is defined by Jesus laying down his life for us. 1 John 3, 16. One commentator said, isn't it interesting that John 3, 16 says the same thing. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And then John 3, 17 says, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved. Jesus is offered to the world, not as condemnation, but as salvation. That's the picture. And thus the quote in the front of the order of worship, where the one commentator said, look, if somebody were to run and jump off a pier and I was sitting on the pier sunbathing and they ran and they jumped off the pier and they said, I'm jumping out to save you. And then they drowned saving me. I would think that's worthless. I'm sitting right here on the pier. I don't need it. But if I'm drowning in the water and someone comes and jumps off the pier to save me and drowns while they save me, that sacrifice makes sense to them. That's surely what love is. Have any of you sat in box 16 over in the sanctuary? Have you sat there before? Have you noticed the two kneelers that are of fish and one is of a trout? Do you know why that's there? The woman who knit that kneeler lost her husband fishing. Do you want to know how she lost her husband fishing? He was with his friends in a swift river and his friends slipped and his waders began to fill and he began to drown. And without thinking, that woman's husband dove into the water with his gaiters on and lifted his friend above the water until he could crawl to safety. And he died doing it. And the woman who sits in that pew week after week kneels on that fish to remember what it means to have been saved. Now, it's one thing to say, oh, certainly we can love that way. And I was watching, you know, these Navy SEALs explain to like the U.S. swim team what it means to be team. And he said, look, let's be honest. You guys are a team to win something. But the way I think of his team is that people who would give their lives for me. And you go, well, yeah, it makes sense. And we might be tempted to say, okay, I'm willing to do that. But then John suddenly turns up the heat and he says, talk is cheap, right? Look at what he says. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. John simply says, I want you to understand that loving in that sacrificial way, giving your life instead of murdering, instead of hatred, makes everyday consequences matter. 
Listen to how he says it again in 17. If anyone has the world's goods, one commentator that I read this week said, any of you who are reading this book, even if you checked out this book in a library, you have access to the world's goods. Any of you who has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and yet closes his heart toward them, how does God's love abide in him? This call, instead of murdering to being self-sacrificers for someone else's needs. And he says, talk is cheap. Let's not love in word and talk, but let's love in deed and in truth. And suddenly you go, that's too great. I'm supposed to be aware of someone else's needs. And guess what you hear? You hear the words of Cain when God came to Cain and said, where's your brother? Do you know what Cain said? How should I know? Am I my brother's keeper? John would say, yes, that's it. The penny dropped. You are your brother and your sister's keeper. That's what the love of the church is supposed to be like. Yes. And why? Because our keeper is the good shepherd, Jesus, who laid down his life for us. John 10. And suddenly the tension is there because you go, I don't even go to church. Unless I were drugged to church, I don't even go. Well, the question is, then, then where do you get the confidence that you believe God if you don't love the brothers and the sisters? And suddenly the tension in your heart crawls up. You saw the tension last week between the spirit and the flesh, right? Well, John isn't going to leave us because the last thing that he does is he shows us the transformation between condemnation and confidence. And listen to how he does it. By this, in 19, by this, our love for the brothers and the sisters, our self-sacrificing love, the transformation from a murderer to a self-sacrificer, by this you shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before us. For whenever our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. You see, Cain heard God speak and he turned and he didn't respond to God. But John is challenging us and saying, when your heart condemns you and you know that you have not loved that way, when we know that we have not loved that way, remember, God knows it. And God loved you in your sin and in your brokenness. And he loves me. When I was a sinner, when I was dead in my sins, do you want to know that there are sins that I have yet to commit that God knows? He knew them before I was even born. There are going to be things that I do that horrify me. How could God love me? And God is going to say, I knew it before you even did it. And I loved you. And John is saying, when your heart condemns you, when you say, this is not the person I am, cast yourself on God. He is greater than your hearts and he knows everything. And then he says, beloved, if your heart does not condemn you, we have confidence before God. When our hearts don't condemn us, when we say, this is what I want more than anything is to sacrifice my life for the brothers and the sisters. Then he says, we have confidence before God. It transforms the condemnation to confidence. And to what end? And whatever we ask, we receive from him in verse 22, because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. 
See, this is one of those verses that the prosperity gospel takes completely out of context. You know that God is pleased with you when he gives you whatever you ask. So you ought to ask for a jet plane. You ought to ask that you get wealthy beyond measure. You ought to ask God, give me everything that I want. But see here, John says, no. We have confidence when our hearts don't condemn us that we want to sacrifice our lives for the brothers and the sisters. And then we can go to God and ask him for the very things that we need to do it. Forgiveness of our sins for not needing to do it. Energy to continue to sacrifice ourselves. Someone to whom we can sacrifice ourselves. Someone that says, I need you. And you give yourself to. The tension that John recognizes in this casts us back on God. And the command is finally reiterated in the end. And this is his command. And notice how belief and love are intertwined. And this is his command, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. Believing God's message transforms us from haters to lovers. A friend of mine told me just the other day that she woke up to a note from her daughter. Her daughter is 10. And her daughter wrote, Dear Mommy, I wrote this morning to tell you that every day I both love you and I hate you. <laughs> My friend looked at this letter and was like, What? <laughs> And you can imagine the weight of that letter. And my friend immediately asked, what do I do? I've completely failed. My daughter says, I both love you and I hate you. And in one sense you go, oh my goodness, what honesty. But in another sense you go, oh my goodness, what honesty. Oh my goodness, what honesty. And you know what my friend did is immediately went to her daughter and held her. And says, I know that about you and I love you. How much more does God wrap his arms around you when you come to terms with the tension inside you that you see in your lack of love that we, let's be like John, that we see in our lack of love for the brothers and the sisters, but there's great hope. I'd love to keep going. I know you don't want me to. I'm going to close. We're going to come and eat. But I want you to realize when we come to the table, we come to be fed so that our faith might grow. Let's pray.